seems like there's a story behind everything you see in Ireland. Some of the country's struggles are artistically depicted in Dublin's Garden of Remembrance. In the tiles on the floor of the water feature, there are broken weapons. They're old weapons, spears and arrows and such like They're broken to show that conflict is over. Coming up, we get expert tips for a walking tour of Dublin. Author Tim Egan reminds us how Ireland's 19th century legacy changed what America would become. And the famine was a horrible tragedy, and it lives deep in our bones right now. But it's also the tale of the human spirit and the resilience. And you can find the old ways are alive and well on the Erin Islands, just beyond Galway Bay. There is a bit of trouble to get there. It's not all that straightforward like, like many islands. So there's a sense of adventure about it. It's about 93 miles of stone walls on those three islands. It's incredible. It's all about Ireland in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The most Irish place of all is not actually on the Emerald Isle. You'll find it on a string of three weather-beaten islands just outside Galway Bay. We'll explore the timeless Erin Islands a little later in the hour. And Tim Egan reminds us of the substantial contributions Irish immigrants have made to American society. He tells the remarkable story of one Irish-American who escaped English executioners to end up becoming governor of the Montana Territory. Let's start today's All-Irish Hour with tips for a walking tour of Dublin. With nearly two million people in Greater Dublin, Ireland's capital is by far its biggest city, and it thrives with arts, entertainment, food, and fun. Just taking a walk through Ireland's capital, you can see and experience so much of its charms. And if you know where to look and if you know where to walk, it's even better. That's why we've invited two great Irish guides, Joe Darcy and Kieran O'Hare, to join us in our studios for a guided stroll through Dublin. Joe and Kieran, thanks for being with us. Our pleasure. Great to be here. So, Kieran, if you were going to take somebody on a walk through Dublin, where would you start? I think I'd probably start up in Stevens Green, which mm-hmm. is at the south end of Grafton Street, which is a pedestrianized shopping street. And, and Stevens Green is a beautiful, manicured 18th century park. It reminds me of when you get off the platform and suddenly you're at Hogwarts. You know, you yeah. step out of the middle of this busy, packed city into a beautiful, manicured park. Actually, it reminds me of London. Very much so. Probably that's because it was designed in a time when Dublin was actually the second city in the British Empire. Oh, without question. You know, everything from the, the wrought iron fencing around the entire park to the style of landscape architecture inside uh, the park is very, very evocative of those parks in London. And, Joe, when we think of St. Stephen's Green today, it has some connections with uh, Ireland's difficult fight for independence. During the 1916 rebellion on Easter Monday, called the Easter Rebellion, and there was one contingent of Irish rebels were in command of Stephen's Green. Their job was to man Stephen's Green, barricade the streets and prevent British reinforcements from getting into the city centre. Amazingly, their only experience of warfare, because these were not soldiers, was watching the Pathé News from World War One and where everybody was digging trenches all over the Belgium and France. So oh. they dug trenches in Stephen's Green to hold out. But of course, British Army got up onto the four-story buildings all around oh the Green, no. particularly the Gresham Hotel. They had a clear line of fire. It's like they're digging their own tombs. Yeah, yeah. So they retreated from there into a place called the Royal College of Surgeons, which is just when you come out of Stephen's Green through that gate, around to your left is the Royal College of Surgeons, and you can still see bullet marks in the hole. And those the, are left the there as there. a memorial almost, I would imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bullet holes to remind of the, the blood that was lost as Ireland won its independence. That was no easy feat. The more understanding of history you bring to your visit to Dublin, the more you'll enjoy your sightseeing. Today, when I go to St. Stephen's Green, it's, uh, of course, you've got the history, but it's just a festival of, of youth and families and life. 
People are feeding the ducks in the pond. There's a little theater there, and it's and it's the kickoff point for Grafton Street. Kieran mentioned Grafton Street. Joe, when you walk down Grafton Street, uh, what are you going to find? You're going to find a multitude of small shops as well as the big retail shops. Actually, strange enough, when you come down from Stevens Green, one of the first big shops you see on your left is Disneyland. <laughs> So there's a the your, Disney store. You know, this is the high rent street. <laughs> yeah. And when you have the high rent street, it drives out the local businesses, doesn't yeah. it? And it brings in the... What are you going to see, Karen, when you walk down Grafton Street? Well, I think the first thing that you notice is the street is seething with life. There's wall-to-wall people coming and going in either direction. And, you know, living in Dublin, you're always... If you live there, you're, you're going to run into someone you know in that street. You know, when you do walk down it, you don't see any churches right on the street, but hiding a little bit off the way is a Catholic church. Why would a Catholic church be hiding off the main street in Dublin? Well, St. Teresa's Church right off Grafton Street was uh, one of the first places that it was allowable, I believe, for Roman Catholics to uh, openly worship after the period of time in the 18th century known as the Penal Laws, Mm -hmm. when open practice of Roman Catholicism was officially outlawed by British rulers in Ireland. So that church is right off St. Stephen's Green, and it's very much... uh, an oasis of tranquility in the city as it has been since the 18th century. St. Teresa's, it's a beautiful church to dip into, and it is interesting to think that in Ireland, uh, Dublin was sort of uh, London's second city, and uh, it was very not Catholic, but when Catholicism was allowed, you could worship as Catholics in Dublin, but keep a low profile. Exactly. So these great churches are tucked away in the back streets. Although they were allowed to openly practice their religion, that wasn't really open. That was in inverted commas. The church still had to be kind of hidden away. Yeah. They weren't allowed to build churches on a main street. That's why it's down that side. So, Joe, at the bottom of Grafton Street, you come to a very important college, a beautiful college, Trinity College, and originally for the elites, for the uh, Protestant kids, but of course today uh, everybody's welcome. As a traveler, how do you enjoy Trinity College? Well, the best way to visit it is to go in through the front main entrance on an area called College Green. When you come out that Grafton Street, just continue on straight over to your right-hand side, and you come out into a beautiful Georgian Square. A huge amount of Dublin was rebuilt. Georgian, and that's like neoclassical. It just screams British Empire. 18th century. King George. Dublin was rebuilt in the 18th century in a Georgian side. We're one of the best Georgian cities in Britain or and Ireland, Trinity yeah. College is sort of like uh, the elite college yeah. for Ireland. Even though the college was founded in 1592, there's nothing left of uh-huh. the original college. It was almost totally rebuilt starting in 1690s and then right through the 18th century. Kieran, my favorite thing when I step through that grand entrance of Trinity is a little table where there are students offering tours. Yeah, that's right. And I used to live right across from that table when I was in college in Trinity, right in Front Square. And there are students known as scholars of the college who've passed a competitive examination to have free tuition at the college. And they give tours of Front Square dressed in the academic gowns that were still common among students until recently. And they are really eloquent, fun-loving students giving you a candid look at student life. It's very inexpensive. It's a great way to get a sense of Trinity College. Absolutely, and a great way to get a sense of the tradition of wit in Dublin that goes back to one of the most famous uh, students at Trinity, Oscar Wilde. Our guides to Dublin on Travel with Rick Steves are Irish-American Kieran O'Hare. He attended Trinity College and is an expert on the Illin Pipes, which he performs with the Celtic trio Open the Door for Three. Joe Darcy provides custom walking tours of Dublin and was recently on the board of Historic Sweeney's Pharmacy, where James Joyce readings are given throughout the week. When we go to Trinity College, of course, you've got to go to the library and see the Book of Kells. It's uh, one of the most important medieval art treasures in Western civilization. When you leave Trinity, what I was really struck by is a bank that used to be the Parliament. You step in there and you get a little dose of British rule of Ireland. Uh, Joe, take us into that bank. The the most important building 
built in Dublin during that rebuilding 18th century was a new bicameral Houses of Parliament. One of the first purpose-built Houses of Parliament, certainly in Europe, if not the world. It took about 40 years to complete between 1740-1780 and it housed two chambers, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, very much along the, the British And we can lines. step into one of those houses to this day. It's yeah. open during banking hours, yeah. it's free, and, and you really get yeah. a sense of that after, rule. After the Act of Union on the 1st of January 1801, we became part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The Bank of Ireland, Ireland's first commercial bank, they took over the building, paid for it. The House of Commons had to be put out of use, never to be used as a place of assembly again. But they said nothing about the House of Lords, so the Bank of Ireland has maintained it. And it's a beautiful room. It's mostly open during banking hours. Occasionally there's functions in there, but you'll see a sign outside that it's either open or closed. I stumbled into it just this last year. I never knew about it, and it was great. Now, Joe, I know that you take tours of the bridges of Dublin. From this uh, Trinity College and the Parliament building, you can walk basically through Temple Bar. That's the party zone where all the pubs are and all the drinking and so on at night, and all the tourists go there for their clichetic Irish kind of fun. You go through Temple Bar, and you get to the Haypenny Bridge, Tell us about the bridge, the river, and the other bridges that uh, lace North and South Dublin together. Hapenny Bridge was built in 1816, so it's over 200 years old, and it was Dublin's first pedestrian bridge. Amazingly, it replaced a ferry service across the river from the fashionable north side, still fashionable then, to the new party area in Temple Bar. There's a perfectly good, well, it wasn't a perfectly good bridge on either side of the Hapenny Bridge, the Halfpenny or Hapenny Bridge, but they were muddy and the ladies were going to the theatre land in Temple Bar. They would get their skirts wet and the gentlemen would get the boots muddy. So they took a ferry across the river. But in the early 1800s, the ferries were becoming waterlogged and the ferrymen were given a choice, either get new ferries or Dublin would build a bridge across and the ferries could organise a company to charge a toll across the bridge and the toll was a half penny. Oh, so you got Haypenny. Haypenny Bridge. It was officially, it still is officially called the Dublin Bridge, uh-huh. but it's um, the, if, half, the if Haypenny there's, Bridge. If there's a postcard of Dublin, one single image, it probably has that beautiful mm-hmm. arcing Haypenny Bridge. Over Interesting the side bit. It was built by Harlan and Wolfe, the big shipbuilders in Belfast and people who built the Titanic. <laughs> Well, Haypenny Bridge is still standing. <laughs> still standing. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Dublin with two Dublin guides, Kieran O'Hare and Joe Darcy. Kieran, we've seen one side of the river. We've crossed the Haypenny Bridge, and just to the right, you see a towering statue, and it's by a very important Irishman. And there's a boulevard that leads up the hill from there, with his same name. And this, to me, is the way to celebrate Irish independence. Walk us up O'Connell Street. Well, absolutely. At the foot of O'Connell Street, right off the River Liffey, is a beautiful statue of Daniel O'Connell, known as O'Connell the Liberator, a great Irish uh, attorney, statesman, and advocate for Catholic religious freedom. A magnificent monument to his memory there at the foot of O'Connell Street, which used to be called Sackville Street when it was built. As you walk up the street, there's an amazing number of statues. The one that always stands out to me is the statue of James Larkin. Yes, his arms outstretched. Um, the great labor organizer and left-wing leader in Ireland. And that's just to the north of the General Post Office, which was, of course, the very nexus of the 1916 Easter Rising, which was the first sort of military expression of an Irish desire for freedom in so the 20th just century. A, just the big post office of the city, but very important in the Irish independence story. Absolutely. It is. The, it was ground zero for the Rising. And across the street from that used to be a grand statue celebrating Admiral Horatio Hornblower Nelson. Yes, which was blown to smithereens in 1966 by the IRA. Wow. And in its place was erected this spire. It's a sleek stainless steel 
knife that sticks into the sky. Yes, it was uh, erected originally for the occasion of the millennium, although it uh, was officially, I think it f- officially went up in 2003, was Two, it, Joe? 2004, actually. 2004, <laughs> Missed, missed the, the millennium. Joe, at the top of O'Connell Street, there's a garden with a pool and a statue and a flag. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, it's one of the most touching places in Dublin to visit. How can we appreciate the Garden of Remembrance? What does it mean to an Irishman? It's a, it's a beautiful, peaceful place. It has a, a water feature in the shape of a crucifix, mm-hmm. uh, which is our nationalism was very Catholic nationalism. And in the tiles on the, the floor of the water feature, there are broken weapons. They're old weapons, spears and arrows and such like. They're broken to show that conflict is over. And at the head of the thing, there's a magnificent statue of the Children of Lear, which is one of the great legends of Ireland, of which there are numerous amounts. And the Children of Lear is in its own way about resurrection. Children of Lear are condemned to be swans for several hundred years, but eventually they come back to life. This remembers the struggle, the people who died, the treasure of Irish independence. Yeah, and rising again. So you have the Easter Rebellion at a profoundly Christian time of the year, Easter, and the Children of Lear represents a resurrection as well from our ancient history. The peace and the success and the, and the prosperity of Ireland is something to celebrate, and when we go to Dublin, we can certainly feel that. Kieran O'Hare, Joe Darcy, thanks so much for a walk through Dublin. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. We have links to our guests in each week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. 877-333-7425. That's our number as we get ready to explore the woolly Aran Islands. But first, Tim Egan tells us about one remarkable Irish immigrant's journey to America on Travel with Rick Steves. A million Irish men and women died during the potato blight of the 1840s. Thomas Francis Marr survived, only to be imprisoned by the British rulers he fought against. He eventually ended up in America, where he became an American Civil War general, governor of the Montana Territory, and one of the best-known Irishmen of his day. Timothy Egan explores his story in his best-selling book, The Immortal Irishman, and what it took for Irish immigrants to make a new Ireland for themselves in the new world. Tim, what did you discover about Thomas Francis Marr that made you want to write a book about him? Because you see the entire, almost the entire Irish-American story in one man's life. He starts out with the famine, the great devastating, the singular crime of Britain, where you mentioned a million people starved to death, another million were forced to leave. And these barefoot peasants who'd never been more than 30 miles from their village, they wash ashore in the United States. Then, And that's a good percent of the entire population. That's correct. That's correct. means basically one in four were called out of Ireland. Then he's sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, and his remains disposed of as Her Majesty shall see fit for his role in, in advocating you know, an independent Ireland. His sentence is commuted at the last minute, and he's sentenced life imprisonment in Tasmania, which is full of Irish refugees. They took orphans off the street, and they put all the political prisoners on Tasmania. So 1840s, he's sent he, on, a, the, on a prison ship all the way, all to, way to Tasmania. Tasmania. Yes. It's the smartest, most eloquent, he's totally very well-educated writer, are all on this one godforsaken to them. It must have been a I mean, They thought voyage. it was beautiful, but they felt so far away. They felt like they dropped off the earth. Right. He escapes from Tasmania and comes to the United States at the very point where we're having peak immigration. So he experiences that. 
Then we have our civil war. And some of the Irish join the South because they're afraid all these freed slaves will take their crappy jobs. But he founds the Irish Brigade and fights in all the major wars of the Civil War and elevates the image that Americans have of Irishmen because of their valor, because of their bravery. They were in all the major battles of the Civil War and had the second highest casualty rate of any other regiments. And finally, he ends up as the first governor of territorial Montana. And he dies at the age of 46. So all of those episodes, any one of which could be one man's life, are in this person's life. What a life when you don't even have modern things that we take for granted to enhance your life. I mean, just to go from one continent to the other was like an epic journey. Exactly. Now, let's just talk about the context here in Ireland, mid-19th century, 1840s and so on. At this time, I understand Dublin was like a respected uh, partner to London, the second city of the British Empire. Well, that's the image the British would give you because they had this thing called the Act of Union, which was a forced union with Ireland had to join Britain. They were determined for almost 800 years to make the Irish English. And so they'd passed a series of horrible laws. The penal laws just basically out, tried to erase all ethnicity. Uh, the statues of Kilkenny made it a crime to have the wrong, to ride the wrong kind of a horse. If a horse was worth more than five pounds, you could be imprisoned. Even the Irish grave was regulated. So the Brits had done everything they could. So they planted uh, Protestants up in the most Catholic part of the island. In the north. north, Exactly. And and ironically, And and kicked people out of their homes. So the most Catholic part becomes what we think of as the indigenous Protestant part. But it wasn't. That was created by London. And that's why you still have tensions today, because it was called the Plantation of Ireland was what it was called. But now the context of Mar is that it's the Victorian age. He's very well educated. He's from Waterford. He's a prince of Waterford. He's a good-looking guy. Speaks five languages. He's kind of a Catholic elite. He comes from a wealthy family. Most of the Catholics are starving. It's a Catholic-majority country. But he has this life ahead of him that could be just easy, go to the club, and then the famine hits. And it radicalizes everyone because they see this massive crime. They see food leaving Irish ports. And, And Mars' cry was, let Irish food raised by Irish hands go into Irish mouths. Great Britain, which was then had the largest empire on earth, one quarter of the world's landmass had the Union Jack flying over it. And the most troublesome part of this vast empire was 30 miles away. Right there on their right doorstep. There. Also, this is the place where they were exporting more food per capita than any other place in the British Empire. While people are starving to death, while little children are chewing dandelions, while they're replacing the bottoms of coffins. So it radicalizes this Victorian gentleman Young Thomas Francis Marney leads the 18, he helps to lead the 1848 rebellion. Tim, when we talk about the Irish famine, I grew up thinking, oh, the potato crop failed and these poor Irish people starved. That's the, the kind of comfortable view of the famine, but there really was an insidious sort of uh, structure behind it. And the English knew that there was more than enough food there and they just wanted to grow food for export. They now recognize it in Britain, at least the government has, that this was a crime and it was also, they didn't have this word then, but it was genocide. Did the so, Irish people know it at the time or was the thought was this is an act of God and right. all of our Well, in died. Britain, they said it was an act of God. They said right. that the Irish families were too big and this was a, this was a benevolent God culling the population. Yeah. They said that and they, they let them starve. They didn't, in some cases, didn't let food land in the ports. The Cherokee Nation were among the people who sent food to the Irish during the famine. And for a time, that ship bound with Cherokee Nation corn could not land in Dublin Harbor. And I was on a panel once where people said, oh, you dumb Irish, how come all you ate was potatoes? Is it, don't you know it's a monoculture? Like, we're so stupid, all we could do is just eat potatoes. Well, in fact, a family could feed itself on a single acre sure. of potatoes. Oh, yeah. But what happened was when the potato crop failed, all these other crops were around, the Brits were systematically exporting them. I should say also that 
this is the kind of history that you can feel, touch, and see when you go to Ireland. One of the things that really moved me to tears, and, and maybe it's because I'm a sentimental Irishman, was seeing a famine village in the west of Ireland, not far from Dingle. Yeah. It was basically these little rock huts, and you can go in and see where the, the fire, the earthen floor, where people tried to boil yeah. their potatoes, and yeah. you can see the, the burial plot out back where yeah. you know you had to bury half of your family. And everyone then walked to the port to go to America. I think I know where you are, these skeletal buildings. They exactly. Just, they just are haunted with hunger, and they're just stones. You right. look through the window, and you see the sky. And then up on the high, exactly. on the slopes, you see the corduroy pattern. You do. Of the plowed lines where they planted the potatoes and they never were harvested. Exactly. And it's really stirring because you feel the heartbreak. You feel the hunger. You feel the... And I admire the courage of those people who, who again, had never gone... Most of them had never even gone to Dublin if you right. live in the Western right. Ireland. Suddenly, they're going to get on what's called a coffin ship because one in five Irish would not make the journey alive. Timothy Egan is introducing us to one of the most notable 19th century Irish Americans right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He writes about the legacy of Thomas Francis Marr in his 2016 bestseller, The Immortal Irishman. Tim's also recently written A Pilgrimage to Eternity, about what he discovered about himself in his Catholic upbringing while traveling the medieval pilgrim trail from Canterbury all the way to Rome. Tim also writes a weekly opinion column for the New York Times. His website is timothyeganbooks.com. So this is the chance for you to take all of this tumultuous story of the Irish people and weave it in to the life of Thomas Francis Marr. And Thomas Francis Marr could have just kept it easy with his rich father in Waterford, where they make that beautiful Waterford crystal, Mm -hmm. or he could get radicalized. And he was a leader in a group called the Young Irelanders, fighting the the Act of Union? Yes, exactly. He went to France in 1848 to, to actually learn from one of those revolutions. And to try to enlist the help of the French as well. They ultimately didn't help, but important thing that happened after that is he brought home the idea for the Irish flag. And so it was orange on one side, green on the other, and white in the middle, signifying the union of the orange and the green. So that would be the Protestant English and the Catholic Irish? Exactly, because they they believed in a unified Ireland, that that we could all live together, but they could self-govern. That was the key thing. They weren't allowed to self-govern themselves. So today, Waterford, Thomas Marr's home, has this great plaque that says, home of the man who gave Ireland its flag. I mean, they'd celebrate Barr for many reasons because he's yeah. their favorite son. And when John F. Kennedy went to Ireland in 1963 and spoke to the Irish Parliament, what was one of the stories he told? It was of the Irish brigade that Thomas Francis Moore had led during the Civil War. Okay, so he's banished for his political activity against London, mm-hmm. sent to Tasmania. He actually escapes, and then he has quite a life in America. Yeah, so he's he gets his hero's welcome when he comes ashore in New York City. Remember, All these immigrants are coming ashore in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York. And there's also a counter-movement to that, which was the know-nothing movement. They thought these people were criminals. We get these words like paddy wagon. They were the second biggest political party in 1854. And so we got interesting parallels today. Well, that's why you're right. That's why we love history. We hear the echoes of history. And and what I heard a lot of in the anti-immigration stuff of the modern day was the echoes of the know-nothing party. But so when Mark comes ashore, he's rallying these poor Irish who, again, are living in these crowded tenements. They're not having good lives. They are filling the jails. Again, I mentioned the term paddy wagon. Uh, hooligan was another word that was created in the United States that came about because of... Oh, a hooligan. That's right. just like a Jones exactly, or something. Exactly. You know? yeah, I mean, like, so I'm not going to gloss it over. They were poor and a lot of them were criminal. Mar rallies them and says, you can have a greater cause. And what is that greater cause? It's fighting the slaveholders in the South when the Civil War comes. 
New York Times columnist Timothy Egan is telling us about the remarkable story of Irish immigrant Thomas Francis Marr, which he writes about in his book, The Immortal Irishman. Joshua is listening in from Bow in New Hampshire and joins us on the line at 877-333-7425. Hi, Rick. Hi, Tim. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Do you, have you had some uh, thoughts about the this sort of Irish diaspora and the impact uh, Irishmen had in the United States? Um, well, actually, yes. I'm interested in uh, Thomas Marr because I'm a history teacher here in New Hampshire. And every year in April, I take a group uh, with some other teachers on a Civil War-themed trip. And we always go to Antietam. Mm-hmm. And I have family from... Ireland from County Kerry on the Ring of Kerry. So I've always been interested in um, the Irish and their contributions to our country. But going on this trip at Antietam has made me wonder that not many Americans knew about the Irish Brigade and the contributions of the Irish to our Civil War and our history. And I'm wondering to what extent today do the Irish understand and celebrate their contributions to our Civil War? Hmm. First of all, thank you for doing this because Rick and I are both big believers in history and we want to keep our stories alive and it's important that we do this. Antietam, as you know, was the site of the worst casualties in the history of America. We never had had a greater loss of life than that one single day in Antietam. I also think Fredericksburg is important, and this gets to your question. Fredericksburg was where the Irish Brigade, there was 100,000 Confederates up on the hill and 100,000 Union members down below. The job was to go up the hill and try to take the hill from them. And they sent the Irish Brigade as the spear of all the other soldiers. Marr knew it was going to be a slaughter. But he told his men, his brigade, to put a little sprig of green under their caps. And they had them all pick the little sprig of green. He says, when they roll our bodies over them, they'll know we died as Irishmen. And it was an utter slaughter. It broke Marr because he had personally recruited most of these boys. He knew their families. He knew their, where they came from. He knew what it meant for them. And they were just mowed down. And when they turned those bodies over, they found those sprigs of green. It's very moving. I mentioned John F. Kennedy, first Irish-American president, and that's the story. That's the specific story, and it goes to your question, do the Irish know this? When he spoke to the Irish parliament, this is the story that JFK told them. Knowing it would resonate with them. Exactly. The story of the boys who put the sprigs of green under their caps. That's good that Ireland is aware of that, because that is some pretty impressive heroism for an immigrant community. Exactly. Joshua, thanks for your call. Thanks a lot, Rick. Thanks, Tim. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Egan. His book is The Immortal Irishman. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Judy's calling from Seattle. Do you have a thought about um, Irish immigration and the impact Ireland has had on on the world? Yes, I've been enjoying the conversation, and Irish immigration brings to mind for me as one of the great labor heroes. I come from a labor family. And I don't know if you're familiar with the history of Mother Jones, Mary Harris Jones. She was a great labor leader. And unlike some of the uh, martyrs Mr. Egan was talking about, she lived to a ripe old age. But in the meantime, she caused a lot of havoc. Are you familiar with her or is Mr. Egan? Well, I'm familiar with her as her place in history. I don't know her story very well, her deep story. Well, there are several books about her, but um, I just think uh, she should be included in the pantheon of the country women who came and engaged in the struggle for uh, workers' rights. She founded the Social Democratic Party, and she helped establish the Industrial Workers of the World, which is a major, still a major uh, force today. And I was wondering if you would ever 
conceive of writing about her. <laughs> There's so many great ghosts out there to chase down. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a promise here on the air. I will look into her story because I only know her as, you know, kind of a bold-faced name of history. Right. And I'm starting to research some early parts of the 20th century, and she's popping up quite a bit. Judy, thanks for your call. Thank you. Tim, I, I want to just take a moment to talk about where you traveled in Ireland to put this book together because anybody who's fascinated by history in, in Ireland has an amazing story. When you travel, the, the land just speaks to you. What were some of the places you went to that really had a very rewarding impact in your work? This truly, as an Irish-American, my family's from County Waterford, where Mars from as well, was one of the most gratifying things I'd ever done. You go to Ireland, you go to hear trad music, you eat fresh food in the West, people are friendly, but they really know their history. Cab drivers will tell you about uh, Daniel O'Connell, the liberator, I'll tell you something about the Great Famine. They really know their history. Ireland also, as you know, some of the main places that a visitor goes to in Ireland are shrines to martyrdom or awfulness or misery. And, you know, much of Irish history, most of Irish history is misery. I always say story. we wouldn't be Irish without our, you know, misery is our currency. So one of the most extraordinary places I went was Kilmainham Jail in mm -hmm. Dublin. Mm -hmm. Now, the castle, which is still there and the most prominent tourist site in Ireland or in Dublin, is where the British aristocracy, the British uh, military, they had a larger garrison in Ireland than they ever had in India. So they always had at least 10,000 soldiers there. The castle represented everything about occupation they didn't like. And the castle is right there in downtown. It's right it, there it's in downtown. Like and you in can go face. in, walk around, and see all those. This is British colonial. Nearby, about a mile or so away, is the jail they built, Kilmainham Jail. Only when I sat in one of the cells and looked out at the limestone, I remember Mar once saying that it seemed that the stone themselves were weeping because Ireland is such a misty, wet place, and the limestone tends to be porous. I sat in Mar's cell, and awaiting death, while well, he dashed off this poetry and all these letters, he was such an effervescent, you know, he was 24 years old. So to go to Kilmainham Jail is quite extraordinary. And then I urge people to go to Waterford. It's often not visited. It's worth a day or two. It's Mars Town, and it's on the river. It's glorious. This is the southeast corner of Ireland. Southeast corner of Ireland. And Mars' home is now the Granville Hotel. Mm -hmm. And it has, I think, five or seven rooms in there. They're all, you could see the life of luxury he had, the tapestry. You can go to the museum. The same statue that started my journey, Rick, I was in Helena, Montana many years ago, and there's this giant equestrian statue of an Irishman with these words of sedition written at the base. And I said to the governor, hey, who's the guy on the horse? And he says, you call yourself an Irish-American and you don't know who Thomas Francis Marr is? That same statue is in Waterford now. Okay. So they, they put it up. And you see these giant banners that now say, welcome to Waterford, home of Thomas Francis Marr. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tim Egan, and his book is The Immortal Irishman, the Irish revolutionary who became an American hero. Tim, if we could just wrap it up, how might we draw inspiration from the history that you share in your book? Well, you know, history sort of echoes around different eras. It goes quiet for a while, and then it reappears. And I think in the present moment in the United States that we're living through, you see so much of the stuff that Marr fought for, the basic concept of immigrants being able to become Americans. How did they become Americans in this country? They fought and died, and that truly made them. But they had to fight horrible prejudice, all the things you hear people say about certain members of society today were said about the first great wave of immigrants, which were the Irish. Also, the pure power of resilience. I wrote a book about the Dust Bowl as well, and it strikes me that the parallels to the famine, that 
these are tragedies. And the famine was a horrible tragedy. And it lives deep in our bones right now. But it's also the tale of the human spirit and the resilience. I'm here today talking to you because my old man, I mean, my great-great-grandfather, I'm, I'm famine Irish on my father's side. Somebody got up and walked with bare feet to come through here. And you've taken the initiative to learn about it and to share it. Tim Egan, thank you so much and look forward to future work of yours. Thank you. Tim Egan explores the Irish immigration to the U.S. and Australia in a website extra to today's show. You can hear it at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, find out how you can feel Irish history all around you on the wind-blown Erin Islands. We're at 877-333-RICK. To visit a place rich in Irish archaeology, history, and traditions, I recommend you actually leave the Emerald Isle. Head out to sea to one of the three Erin Islands. They're home to historical and sacred sites, many of them from the age of saints and scholars and even earlier. Handmade stone walls and a heavy hand-knit sweater may be your only protection against the elements. The islands are known as Inishmore, Inishman, and Inishir, and they guard the entrance to Galway Bay. The price of admission might just be a bumpy ferry ride. Our guides to the Aran Islands are Irish tour guides Stephen McPhillamy and Peter Byrne. Thanks, Rick. Great great to be here. Stephen McPhillamy, what is special about the Aran Islands? There's a lot of islands you could go to. Why would somebody take the trouble of going from Galloway way out into the Atlantic to visit the Aran Islands? Well, I think the fact that you're taking the trouble, there is a bit of trouble to get there. It's not all that straightforward like, like many islands. So there's a sense of adventure about it. Galway is the nearest big city. There's a lot of visitors there anyway, and there's a bit of excitement about, let's go to the Aran Islands. You know, you're out in the Atlantic. There's three islands there. Population's only 1,200. If any of your listeners had a preconception that Ireland was, you know, where people had thatch cottages and, and rode donkeys and wore iron sweaters and spoke Irish, well, the Aran Islands is exactly that. That is so, it. It's so uh, true. 1,200 uh, people. Yeah, it's a very traditional way of life out there. But at the same time, you know, it's moving into the, the new century now and it's uh, dealing with all sorts of problems as well because the people are quite isolated out there. A lot of the young people don't want to stay there. You know, they're in Chicago or they're in Galway or they're in Dublin or... Island life is hard, and it's very important for us as a nation to sustain and support our island communities. Does the government actually subsidize living there in any way? Government would subsidize living there through many different projects. Like They have a state-of-the-art new marina there for the fishing boats to dock because these fishermen were having to dock in Galway. And if this community is to survive, Irish-speaking families have to live on the island. They have to have the facility. So they got, a, I think it was 30 million euro or something spent by the Irish government, just to sustain and keep the island community alive. So there would be Irish citizens who wouldn't agree with that. They think that's a waste of too, money. Well, a bit too big a splurge. Yeah. But remember, there's the Irish language aspect of this too. They speak Irish genuinely on the Aran Islands. And if the Irish language is to be kept alive, we have to put resources into it. And, and the island life, if it's to be kept alive, they need to have resources as well. Peter Byrne, 1,200 people living on these three little islands. It's pretty bleak. It's, I mean, there's hardly a tree on the islands. How can you find some charm there? What, what would reward you if you took a visitor there? Well, I think what's spectacular about it is there's a place on it that's known as Dunangus. And this goes back to BC times. I don't know how people like to describe it, but the first of these forts started turning up around 500 BC. This one in particular is a stone fort, and what makes it exceptionally powerful is that it's bordered on the sea. You can't attack it from the seaward side. 
that shows you that people have lived here in that same simple fashion for all that amount of time. For 2,000 years, roughly. Over 2,000 years, yeah. And they built this fort, and it's literally on a cliff, isn't it? It must be 200 feet above the sea. It's on a cliff face, but we've got to remember that most of these forts were, in actual fact, dwellings. They needn't necessarily be a chieftain. It could be the head of a family. But they'd be trying to protect their wares. They'd be trying to protect their animals. But more importantly, it shows you that there was also a threat from the sea, even back 2,000 years ago. So they protected themselves from attack from the sea by putting it at the edge of a cliff. Now, we all think that pirates and these guys didn't turn up till the 17th and 18th century, but we've evidence in Ireland that even possibly as far as 3,000 years, there was people turning up in little phases in Ireland so that they didn't were, make they any were, sense. There were humble communities of farmers and families that would, be, that would gather together and then make a stone fortification on the cliff, 200 feet above the raging Atlantic surf. Mm-hmm. And then even from the island side, Stephen, when you, when you approach it, you find defences built into the rocks, don't you? Absolutely. All three islands have got loads of great archaeological sites. Sometimes there are tour guides in Ireland who don't like the hassle of leaving Galway and going out on the ferry because it can be pretty bumpy. I've gone out there probably a hundred times and on maybe two occasions it was like that movie The Greatest Storm or The Perfect Storm. The perfect or, Storm, yeah. Or it was rough. So some tour guides as a result don't like going out there, so they call it Alcatraz. And it's completely unfair because the island has got so much archaeology. We're talking there about Dun Angus. There's also a feature there called Polnapest. It's called the Wormhole. And they did some cliff diving there, like world cliff diving. And it's just spectacular. Now, most visitors to the Aran Islands don't go here because you have to get way off the beaten path. In fact, they're not even a beaten path. So you're going way <laughs> over the rocks. And you come to this, it's basically like... Um, a ledge of limestone, and it looks like the ancient gods have carved a swimming pool in the rock. It's a perfect uh, rectangle, and every time the waves come in, it just gushes up and sprays into the air, and it's just magnificent. And the locals have claimed there used to be a serpent, you know, a sea monster in there. So that's why it's called Polnapesh, the pool of the, the ancient sea worm. It's a strange anomaly. It's an incredible anomaly. Well, it's worth the view. It, it is, and it's almost like a lunar landscape out there. It is so bleak, and yet there's civilization because I remember meeting a farmer that would take us, and they have this wonderful way of restacking their, their fences, right? What, what is the deal with it? They don't have gates? No, well, what they do is this freestanding stone walls, and the incredible thing in the islands is that there's about 93 miles of stone walls on those three islands. It's incredible. So what they do then if they're moving from one area to the other to save the grazing, they will take down a section of the stone wall to allow the animals through and put it back up again. And it's an art. It is an art. Not just anybody can do it. It's a dying art, to be honest. It's disappearing. Now, just from a practical point of view, there's there's three ways to get to these Aran Islands that I've done. We can go fly from Galway. You can take the big commuter boat from, what's the port? From Rossaville. Rossaville, Yeah, so it's in Connemara, but an hour from Galway. So you take the bus from Galway to Rossaville, and then it's a pretty reliable, big, um, fast boat. And then there's more of a rustic ship, isn't there, from Doolin? From Doolin. You can go from Doolin, or you can go from Rossaville. Most people would probably go from Rossaville, I would imagine, and then you can fly. If you do happen to be thinking of flying, I think it might only be a 10-seater. Yeah, this is not. Yeah, uh, I did it, and it's seven four seven. It, it was really a. It's a case of up and straight down it's again. A, it's a fifteen minute ride, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah. The thing with Doolin is that what would attract people to Doolin maybe a little bit more to travel. It's very much hostel orientated, and down in Doolin, you've got the traditional music and the it's youth also, hostel. Yeah, so backpackers. Yeah, and, uh, and it's Irish also the back music. door to going around by the cliffs of Moher. So right, yeah. traveling from there is an adventure. 
What we were saying about rough water, oh my goodness, coming from Dublin is fun. <laughs> yeah, so if you want to be a little more, um, let's say, less adventurous and you're not, not wanting to feel the waves, you can take the bigger ship from Rossapenna. But it's fabulous if you've got sea legs. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy and Peter Byrne, and we're talking about the Aran Islands, A-R-A-N, off the west coast of Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Aaron is calling in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Aaron, thanks for your call. Um, my husband and I spent four nights on the Aran Islands for our honeymoon um, in October, and we absolutely fell in love with it. We had planned to go for just one night on our first trip from Doolin, and we didn't make it because of the ferry, so we went back for four nights, and it was one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been, and what we loved about it was that we had all this time to hike that we wouldn't have had on a day trip. Yeah, I think that's vital. I'd see, to my shame, I've never actually stayed overnight out there. I've been out there because you're always there times. with tour groups. And there were tour tripping. groups, yeah. yeah. And I have a good friend out there who owns a hostel on the island, and I have good friends who own the B&B, and they're always saying, come out, and they tell me all the stories about the night before when I'm out there. They're saying, oh, the, the fun we had here last night. And then I, I meet people who have the time to go out there, and they go hiking like yeah. you've done, and they'd say it's just one of the highlights of Ireland, maybe one of the top three places in the country. So, Aaron, did you stay in the in the big town, Kilronan? No, we actually, I called in last year and Barry Maloney recommended that we stay in Kilmurvy House in Kilmurvy, and we did that. We were a little worried about it because it wasn't in the big town in Kilronan, but it was actually wonderful because they would drive us in to Kilronan for dinner every night and pick us up. But then we were staying basically at the foot of Dunningus. I know that and place. Yeah, that's beautiful. we were able to get up there at sunset by ourselves one evening and it's just that much more bleak and stark and beautiful staying a little bit further out. So tell me about being on Erin Island after hours when no, none of the tourists are there in the evening. We were there in October so it was starting to get dark a little bit earlier so we noticed even more in the morning before the ships the ferry would arrive that it was just very quiet and we could go anywhere that we wanted and meet only local people pretty much before 11 a.m. We were kind of an anomaly. What are two Americans doing staying here for four nights? Like everyone kept asking, why are you here? Hmm. And we told them that we wanted to hike. So they sent us on all kinds of hikes with no map. We went to the wormhole that one of your guys mentioned. And my favorite hike was to the Black Fort. Yeah. Um, where you basically hike up to the end of a path and then climb over one of the stone walls and then follow along the coast until you get to the fort. And it's right on the edge of the cliff, like Dunangus is, but you have to actually walk up almost to the very edge of the cliff to get around inside of it. You have to get within four feet of the edge of the cliff to go around the wall and get inside the fort, which we did. That would frighten me. I was terrified. My husband thought it was the greatest adventure ever, and I think I followed him just to be sure that he didn't fall off the edge of the cliff. You know, when I get to one of those cliffs, you got to think of this is like a slate surface, and then it plunges straight down 200 feet. And I remember laying down on the rock, wishing I was a human suction cup, because I get these freaky ideas that a gust of wind's going to blow me into the sea, and I creep towards the edge. 
and I get to the edge with all four of my limbs trying to grip this flat stone, and then I look out, and I look straight down, and I'm looking down at seagulls, and it's just me and the wind and the ocean, and there's nothing between there and Boston. I mean, it's just vast ocean. And then I'm surrounded by this prehistoric stone fort, and it's one of the most dramatic experiences a traveler can have. And to do that before the crowds hit, like you did, Aaron, getting there before the incoming tide of tourists at 11 in the morning, that must have been dramatic. It was really incredible, one of the best things that we did. But actually, outside of Kilronan and outside of Dunningas, even in the middle of the day, we hardly ran into any tourists. One day, we biked even further out from Kilronan beyond Kilmervy, and we didn't really have a map. It was after the tourist season, so the one that you and everyone else recommends was sold out. So we were just told, take your water, and if you get lost, knock on someone's door. They'll give you a glass of water and directions back. That's so Irish. If you get lost, <laughs> knock on someone's door. I love it. Hey, Aaron, did you notice that when the uh, boats came in, there were minibuses waiting to take the day trippers on three-hour tours on their minibus with a local farmer as the driver guide? Yes. We actually took one of them as a taxi to the B&B the first day. And he offered to pick us back up and take us on the tour, but we decided not to. The crossing was really rough, so we oh, weren't yeah. feeling very well. But by the way, those are wonderful f- characters, and you just get a feeling like you got a friend, and you're driving around in the middle of nowhere, and they tell you stories. It's quite nice. Uh, we used to have a, a guy who took us around called Tommaso O'Toole. Unfortunately, he's passed on now, but we had so many great stories from him. And he had spent many years in the U.S. Navy, he would tell us about his time in the Navy and he'd tell us about the time when he was a kid on the Iron Islands and they'd go out in those traditional boat, which is called a curruck, which is a timber frame with a you know cow skin stretched over it. And I remember one day standing, looking at the ocean. It was a particularly rough day and I said, could you imagine being out there in a boat? He said, I used to be out there in a curruck. I used to go out there fishing wow. in this boat, you know. And when you're it's, on, like, it's like a clumsy canoe, basically. Yeah, it's super dangerous. And many of them, sadly, did lose their lives. As you know, There's yeah. a lot of tragedies on the Iron Islands with the fishermen it's, drowning. It's the only thing you could use, and what makes it more remarkable is it's paddle power, but unlike oars, it's just like a pole. And they're out in the middle of the Atlantic, and they would transfer sheep back and forth from the mainland young cows back and forth from the mainland. So this is how they would bring their sheep and their cows to market? It was the only thing, because it was the late 1900s before we had engines and that it was, would fit small enough, and this was a natural way of life. There must have been a lot of widows. There was, but that's the way it goes. But the, the thing about it is, it also could be said that the first ever CSI investigations went on in the Aran Island because everybody's heard about Aran sweaters. The Aran sweaters. The, the Aran sweaters. Heavy wool sweaters. Heavy wool. Now, these families all knitted their own patterns. The lady of the house would knit the patterns for her husband and her sons and obviously the daughters as well because it was very warm in the wind and the damp air over there. But when they were out in the boats fishing and if they fell overboard, it was like having a ton weight. They were gone instantly. So these bodies might not turn up for quite some time, having been in the sea, but when they did eventually wash ashore, you could look at the pattern and identify the body that way. You knew what family it was from. And you knew what family it was from. the pattern. Hey, Aaron, thanks for your call. Thank you. We're exploring the rugged Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Stephen McPhillamy, who also operates the Milltown House B&B on Ireland's Dingle Harbour. And Peter Byrne comes to us from Dublin. He's a driver and a guide for custom small group tours. Terry's calling in from Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Terry, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, well, my husband and I had gone to Innismore a few years ago, and it was one of my favorite places in, in Ireland, and really because of how beautiful and rugged it was, but also we spent two nights there, like Aaron did, and 
it was amazing how quiet it was. Mm. I have never been to any place where it was more quiet at night and just, it was amazing. I want to do that. I mean, like Stephen said, most of us tour guides, they, we go in with the groups in the day and then we go back to Galway that night, spend the night. It was great. And, and we also rode bikes around and all. But I, again, it was nighttime after our, most of the tourists had left and we went for a long walk. You didn't even hear birds because there's so few trees. It was just amazing. So we loved it. But I guess my question is, we enjoyed it so much. I'd like to go back again. We rode bikes. We went up to the fort and, and did some hiking. Is there any other things that you would recommend so I can entice my husband to go back again? Well, the only thing about it is it's of a limited size. It's an island in, and a very small island. But one of the things that you did mention was cycling. It's an absolutely terrific place for cycling around. The main carrot to try and dangle in front of them might be that there's two other islands as well. Yeah, because uh, right, Terry yeah. mentioned Inishmore, <laughs> which is yeah. the big island. Yeah. yeah, and there's Inishman and Inish Ear. You know, a lot of visitors to Ireland will go to the main sites and then you'll have a, you know, a hardcore elite who will go to the Aran Islands, but they don't go to the Aran Islands, they go to Inishmore. So like the the real Navy seals of tourists to Ireland would go to Inishman or Inish Ear. You mentioned 1,200 people live in the Aran Islands. I understand about two-thirds of those are living on Inishmore. So these yeah. islands are just a handful of people, a couple hundred people. And you'll find B&Bs. On the other two islands, there's B&Bs and restaurants. There's one restaurant out there that's got a great name, reputation now, and it's booked out months in advance. There's um, the same great archaeology, ring forts and standing stones. 2,000-year-old uh, reminders that people have been there for a long time. Yeah. Terry, thanks for your call. Thank you. Donna's calling from a town called Delaware in Ohio. Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Golly, it's been 17 years since my husband and I visited on Inishmore. We just happened to do a day trip there. And as Rick mentioned, there were many, 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 many buses there waiting for us. And it's just a matter of, of picking one and uh, hoping that you have a, a good guide and a good driver. And we did. And, of course, we stopped at Dunangus and several other places. And it was about a three-hour tour, like, like Rick had mentioned. How touristy have the islands gotten in the past 16 years? Well, believe it or not, they're a big draw for younger people. A really seriously big draw. One time, young people would gravitate towards Galway or some of the cities like this. But now it's become a big thing that young people... Um, it's a very good university town now in Galway. And there's a lot of Americans attend the university there too. So these people go out and it's young, it's vibrant. You get a lot of um, planned events, particularly off-season with these young people. So when they get their friends in in the summer, they go out. It's not a problem to see so many young people. It's absolutely terrific, but it would be a huge difference from when you saw it. It'd be almost a cultural shock. You'd be so delighted to see these people out here. You well, know? that brings it life, and that's encouraging because as in, in so many cases, the young people are leaving to the big cities, I think, as, as Stephen mentioned earlier, and there's reason for this uh, remote corner of Ireland to stay vital. Mm-hmm. Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye now. You know, this conversation has reminded me how important it is when you're going to go all the way to Ireland to do a little studying and go one step further than the mainstream. And if you like Irish culture in so many ways, it seems like you'll find it in the extreme when you go to the Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland, uh, a jump on the plane or a short bus ride and boat ride from Galway. Peter Byrne, Stephen McPhillamy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Kazmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. 
Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnikon. We get promotional support from Sheila Gruzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find guest information, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.